Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome back to the School of Wellbeing podcast and Happy New Year. I have been looking forward to 2022 for so long and I have such a good feeling about this year and I could not think of a better guest to kick off the year than Dr. Susie Green. Susie is a clinical and coaching psychologist and the founder and CEO of the Positivity Institute. Susie is a pioneer and leader in the fields of positive psychology and coaching psychology. She's dedicated to the research and application of positive psychology in the workplace and in schools. In this conversation, we talk all about what are goals? When it comes to our well-being, why do goals matter? Why do we fall short of our goals? Practical ways to keep us on task when our goals feel a little bit out of reach. And Susie explains her New Year goal-setting process. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Susie Green. Welcome, Susie, to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you so much, Meg, for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation because I think going into this year, it's a time for people to really think about their well-being and take it seriously. And I think that you have the ability to help us take a thought into a reality. So to kick things off, what sparked your interest in living a good life, but having some strategy and goals around it? Oh, I'm not entirely sure, Meg. I think in my 20s, um, you know, I was a fan of Oprah and uh and I, I think, you know, I started along the path of psychology and I still remember sitting in my first lecture and having this aha moment that this was the path for me and that I knew that I was going to make it to the very end. And then I think, you know, I started to become aware of this field of uh, particularly of life coaching that was emerging, never sort of linking it to psychology or I mean, I linked it to psychology, but I didn't see that I could have a professional psychological path as a life coach, uh, but, you know, I had an interest in that area. And then, you know, cutting a long story short, I ended up doing a welfare study on evidence-based life coaching um, as part of a clinical doctorate. And, you know, since then, this is the path I've been on. And uh, I love what I do. I love taking the science out to the world and making, seeing it make a difference in people's lives. Oh, that just gets me excited hearing that story and seeing the joy on your face when you talk about bringing the science to people's lives. And so when it comes to goals, what even are goals? <laughs> you know, I, I've learned this down pat and I haven't, because I haven't been doing as much, um, I guess, presenting as, as I normally would recently. I had to do a double take on it, but it um, it's the technically or you know, scientifically, it's the internal representation of desired end states. So that's, that's uh, you know, a, a lot of words. So basically everybody has goals. And, Meg, over the years I've met lots of people that say to me, oh, I don't do goals or I don't like goals. But the fact is we all have goals. It's just whether you make them explicit or not. So, you know, even just thinking about our well-being and perhaps what our intentions are and there's lots of uh, I guess associated words desires intentions 
Um, they are goals, you know, uh, this internal representation we have in our mind's eye uh, in, for, in, for many people an image, um, for others it just might be thoughts around what they would like to move towards and move away from and it is of a desired end state. So it's something that we desire into the future or something that we'd like to create or manifest if you like. Oh, I really like that definition and I love that idea about thinking about for us, what is our desired end state? Where do we hope to get to? Absolutely. And I love that concept of dreams and desires. You know, what what's pulling us in into the future? And as you know, Meg, Marty Seligman, founder of uh, PostSite a number of years ago now, started talking about this concept of prospection, you know, uh, rather than being driven by our past, what pulls us into the future. And in fact, I was in uh, the presentation at a Positive Site conference, I think it was at Monash at the time, when he first um started to talk about that and I was sitting with a group of my coaching psychology buddies and we all looked at each other and went right finally (laughs) we've been talking about this in coaching psychology for a long time because coaching psychology is very much about our dreams and desires and our preferred scenario and what's pulling us into the future I love thinking about what's pulling us forward and then a question that comes to mind is For a lot of the people that I work with, they struggle to even think about what they desire, what they Mm -hmm. hope for, what they want. It feels like there's almost a block there. Have you come across that? Yeah, it's interesting, Meg. People can pretty quickly tell you what they don't want, but they often find it very difficult to articulate what they do want. And this becomes really clear and obvious when we're doing training on solution-focused coaching. Uh, you know, you spend maybe an hour going through the theory and then the techniques and the solution-focused questions. You put people into coaching pairs or triads and you walk around and you say to them, right, talk about something that you want to, you know, a goal that you want to pursue and then start using the solution-focused approach. And time and time again, you know, you walk around and what are people doing? They're still talking about the problem. (laughs) So they find it very hard to articulate a solution. And that's where I think solution-focused coaching is is really powerful um, in terms of giving us the questions, um, beautiful, you know, powerful questions that can really take us out of the problem box. And that's what uh, Tony Grant, who was the founding father of coaching psychology, used to talk about how we get stuck in this problem box. And it's you know, why does that happen and who's to blame? And we go round and round. And one solution-focused question, um, perhaps something like the miracle question, which is a really powerful question in terms of if a miracle happened tonight and you woke up tomorrow morning and the problem was resolved, what would you see? What would be the first thing you noticed? So a really powerful solution-focused question can take us out of that problem box into the potential future and into the potential solution. So I think one is, um, as I said, people do find it hard to articulate what they do want. But I think there's a number of reasons or a number of obstacles that get in the way. Uh, First and foremost, I think life. Life is V-busy, as we know, um, and we have competing priorities. We have multiple goals, and sometimes it's a matter of, um, you know, working out what those priorities are. Two, sometimes we just, we're not explicit enough, and, uh, you know, you've probably heard of the acronym SMART, which is uh, SMART goals, which is based on, many, many years of research and a classic paper by Locke and Latham that finds that found that when goals are particularly specific, um, measurable, uh, originally it was called attractive. We, we've 
change that to authentic, aligned to our values, realistic and timeframe. But often people are, yeah, you know, I just want to be happier. I just want to improve my well-being. Well, we know that you actually do need to get much more specific, particularly over the shorter term. So it's it's actually better to give yourself permission to dream and have a what we call a fuzzy vision into the longer term because you don't want to be too specific. Because if you're too specific, you can miss all these amazing opportunities that emerge if you're too narrow. You want to be agile and flexible and looking for opportunities. But in the shorter term, say particularly um, one to three months, it can be helpful to be more specific around what are the specific actions I'm going to take. And there's another whole body of research around implementation intentions by Peter Goldwitzer, um, Heidi Halverson, that tells us that when we're really specific around how we're going to implement our intentions, uh, then we're more likely to achieve them. So it is a balance. And as you know, um, Meg, we're really moving to this much more dialectical approach of, of it not being either or, but we want the fuzzy, you know, we want the fuzziness, but we also want the specificity at the same time. Oh, there's so much of that that I'm just cheering on because first to come back to the analogy of the problem and being stuck in the box, you know, I say that time and time again that when they when you give the opportunity to nudge out, like what would it feel like for you if you weren't exhausted? What would it be like exactly. for you if you were present in your relationships? And for some people think, I actually don't know what that's like because I haven't experienced <laughs> that state before. I haven't experienced not being stressed. I haven't experienced not being exhausted. I don't experience much time where I'm in deep and meaningful conversation because I feel like I'm constantly distracted. And then to sit with that for a little bit and think about that because something that I've noticed is People love the idea of well-being. They get excited yeah. by the idea of well-being and it's a lovely intention and it's a lovely thought to think about being well and living authentic lives and, you know, it gets re- people really excited. However, they don't seem to have the same excitement about strategy, about implementation, <laughs> about right. doing the hard work. And I sometimes laugh with people to say the brochure that I would like to write is not the one anyone would like to read, you know, thinking about the idea of discipline and consistency and a lot of well-being's not photo-worthy, it's not Instagram-worthy, it's uncomfortable and it's hard. So when it comes to our well-being, why do you think it's so crucial to have a more strategic approach? Well, I think first and foremost the science um, supports the fact that if we do and, and this is a really important point too. It's not just about setting goals; it's about the goal striving process. So we always try and, I guess, educate people around the difference. And and generally, most people are not too bad at setting goals. If we think about news resolutions, which are, are coming up, um, but it's the goal striving process uh, that that they fall off on. And so having a strategy, as you said, or having um, some specific actions. Uh, the research tells us are going to more likely support us towards the achievement of our goals. And I think, you know, as we know from some of the research on the VIA, although um, there's some some questions around that, uh, how self-regulation is assessed on there, but um, we know that generally most of us aren't that highly self-regulated. You know, in fact, self-regulation comes in the bottom five from many, many people. So, um, so yeah, I think that that capacity to self-regulate is is a skill that can be learned. And in fact, 
we often describe coaching as assisted self-regulation. So it's having a cheerleader, having someone there to support you to go through the cycle of self-regulation. The cycle of self-regulation is setting a goal, taking action, reflecting, much like Kolb's learning cycle, and then going back out, taking action, and that continuous cycle until you sort of make uh, progress towards your goal. And I think most of us will outsource or seek professional help when it comes to every other aspect of our lives but there's still hesitancy about engaging a coach, you know, and, and I think I'm I'm all for it's not about having a coach for life. It's about thinking about when might a coach be really helpful at what um, key choice points in my life or transition phases in my life would it be helpful to engage a coach. And through that process, the coach is actually role modelling, um, but they're also providing, I guess, a roadmap of how to proceed through the cycle of self-regulation. And the ideal is, is that you're actually teaching and helping the coachee to improve their self-regulation that, so that they can self-coach into the future as well. Oh, that's such a good point, Susie, about that idea of reaching out for help. Because I think there's a, a part of us that thinks that because it's a human thing, well-being, that we should know, we should know mm. how to do these things. It's kind of like maybe when we become parents, we feel like, oh, now that I'm a parent, I should know. <laughs> and the yeah. reality is we've got no idea. Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. And there are people that have skills that can help us move from point A to point B. I know that I would not be where I am in my life today if I didn't have all the coaches, all the mentors, all the therapists. Like They've been able to walk right. with me on the journey. And as you say, be that example and support us. And I think that is probably one of the blocks to well-being for a lot of people is they feel like they should be able to do it themselves. It should be, I should be able to do this. Like it's quite simple. I should be able to go to bed and I should be able to eat well and I should be able to do this and listening to all those shoulds. The reality is for the average person, it's pretty hard to change patterns that are pretty (laughs) well-versed over years. Absolutely. And we know we draw heavily on uh, the trans-theoretical theory or model of change in coaching, which has been used extensively and particularly in drug and alcohol treatment. And we know, for example, that people go through these stages of change when you're trying to give up smoking, not that I've ever been a smoker, thankfully, but when people have um, been trying to give up smoking, on average, they go through the cycle seven to 10 times of Uh, being in contemplation, preparing, acting, um, they're more likely to relapse, you know, or have a lapse. Um, So if you go into the process of change, knowing that there's a chance that it's not going to be a perfect, you know, linear pathway to my, you know, my goal, then you're going to be more compassionate towards yourself, aren't you, when you have a little bit of a lapse or if you fall off the wagon, you go, right, that's just part of the process and I get back on the horse again. But I found I've had coaches myself like you, um, Meg, when I was doing my doctorate on coaching, I thought, wow, I need to have a coach if I'm if I'm studying this. And uh, I think there were four of us doing the clinical doctorate at the time and I was the first one to submit my thesis arguably the least stressed. Um, So, yeah, so I know myself when I moved from uh, Wollongong, which was my hometown, and moved to Sydney, that was a huge transition for me. I engaged a coach to make that transition. It was the best investment I ever made. 
Um, and at other times with my business, I've engaged uh, business coaches as well, and it's been really, really helpful. But again, I don't think we need to send the message that we should have one all the time. But again, at what points might it be really helpful to work with someone to look at all the potential pathways into the future, rather than just as many people will say to me, I've just fallen into things, you know, I haven't really given a lot of thought, a job's come up or, you know, a new relationship, and I've just fallen into it, I haven't really sat in the neutral zone and really thought about what I value, what my strengths are, and then look systematically looking at those pathways and weighing them up against the things that matter, that leverage my strengths, and then being more conscious in my choice in in moving forward. Yes, I love that word conscious, like to consciously bring awareness to our well-being. And I often laugh with people and say, you know, well-being is a contact sport. It's not a spectator sport. (laughs) I love it. <laughs> like you've got to get in there and you've got to do the work. You know, intentions are just not good enough. We need to approach it with um, some strategy and that conscious approach. And I love what you've highlighted is sometimes we don't know what's possible for us until we work with someone or even a group of people. I'm sure in all the incredible work that you've done, you've seen people enter a program and exit a program with a whole new lease on life. Oh, amazing. It's a privilege, Meg, as you know, and I know you you have a large audience of educators and, as you know, I've worked for over 10 years with schools and I still have sort of, you know, little visions or memories of returning to schools and a teacher tracking me down, walking through the school saying, oh, my God, Susie, guess what? I ran that marathon that I set that goal in the coaching session that we had or, you know, I did this or I did that. So it's it's so amazing. But there is one obstacle which I, I want to highlight that's just come to mind again and clearly that's our, our mindset and uh, the role of a coach is to challenge the ants, the automatic negative thoughts that uh, can get in the way because my experience is it's not that people don't have the capabilities, it's their their mindsets, their beliefs about getting there that gets in the way. And so the type of coaching that I've done, uh, the majority of my research studies on has been cognitive behavioural solution focused coaching. And so a large part of it is picking up the unhelpful or irrational thoughts that get in the way of us making progress towards our goals. Oh, I love that you bring up that idea of the ants, Susie, because they are definitely a part of the change process. So people who are listening and aren't aware of this idea of the automatic negative thoughts, can you explain that a little bit and how we can potentially start to catch them? Absolutely. Well, we all have the Meg, as we know. No one's immune from them. They're they're quite insidious. They sit under the surface. We're often quite unconscious to them. Um, you know, and they have a significant impact on our our potentiality, really, as to who we can be or what we can do. I also want to say they're symptomatic of clinical depression. So um, I often say my clients have said to me in the past, I have an ant farm, Susie. So, um, I mean, if you're really struggling with the ants, you certainly want to seek professional help around that because there are many treatments that can help reduce uh, the number of ants. But, um, I mean, I'm also a big fan of seeing basic cognitive behavioural and the newer forms of acceptance and commitment therapy being taught in schools. Um, It is in in many schools, but it's not in all schools yet, Meg. And they are basic mindset skills that all children, all of us should have access to. For me in my 20s, they changed my life when I learned 
you know, that a thought is not necessarily a fact and that I could learn to be curious about it and not necessarily buy into the story that I was unconsciously, you know, mindlessly telling myself and start to question that and to come up with the pets, which are the performance-enhancing thoughts. And, look, kids love the, the good. We've had it with you kindies you know um setting up ribbons along a wall and having their ants on one side and then the then uh, if one child has an ant the others all help them turn it into a pet and um and of course there's a lot more to to these types of approaches than simply you know flipping it but they are fantastic skills that uh, i wish were taught at um in all schools oh absolutely and so to give listeners a concrete example i know one of my one is you're not smart enough. You're just not yeah. smart enough. So when I go to do something, oh, you're not smart enough. And now because I can catch that and understand that, I get the giggles. I'm like you have been yeah. around forever. <laughs> like get a new one. It's so boring. Like I, I don't know everything, but I know enough to be able to help some people that I can s- still share. So I've been able to listen to that, understand that, reframe that, and not let that stop me. Where for a long time, that made stopped me, but not just stopped me. It made me study even harder and harder and harder so I was learning more but it stopped me from sharing so I've been able to catch that I'm not smart enough to well I know some stuff and yes I'm I'm not the smartest person in the world but I know some things that can help and to share that and to move beyond that automatic negative thought and it's really interesting that when I do activities like this in a school setting or even with staff we do that activity where they're all around the edge of the, the room and I, I stand in the middle and say, like, I'm just on my little boat and I have these thoughts sometimes and I'm going to say a thought and if you ever have the same thought that I do, come and stand on my boat. Love it. And so I, I say, I start off with easy ones like, oh, I'm hungry or whatever, so, you know, people come and that's fine. And then I eventually get to the point of I'm not smart enough and mm. lots of people come on the boat and for colleagues to see the principal going on to thinking I'm not smart enough and yeah. the department. It's just so powerful. And then we have a big giggle because, like, hey, we're just human. Like this is a part of it. And our choice then is when these thoughts pop up, do we move towards that avoidance or understanding and moving forward? So I think this is really powerful for people to start to catch their own negative thoughts. Can you think of some really common ones that come up for people? Yeah, look, you're right. The two main ones in the research in cognitive behavioural therapy has identified that if you drill down under the ants, there's two primary core beliefs, which is I'm incompetent, which is, you know, I've, I've personally suffered from that one too, Meg leaving school at 16, um, and I'm unlovable or I'm unlikable. So um, it's really helpful if this is new to you, to try and catch the ants, try and write them down um, when you first start to become aware of them and you, you'll you start to see patterns or themes and you might start to see the underlying core belief. Now, my experience has been for many people without clinical um, disorders, this is a skill that can be learned relatively easily and applied, but if you are really struggling, then it can be helpful to go and see a professional to do to do this work and to do the deeper in, in some ways, psychotherapeutic work around the core beliefs and where they've emerged they've emerged from. But one thing I do know is they don't necessarily ever go away completely. And I know each each, each time I'm in a and and my I guess trigger audience are uh, academics. Um, and even though you know I have honorary academic positions, I'm not a full time academic. So 
Um, so when I'm in those trigger situations, I'm like you, I go, oh, I can't believe this. Here we go again. So I have a bit of a laugh at, um, at you know, little miss not smart enough raising her ugly head there. And uh, so I think the self-compassion is really important as well as the humour combined with some self-compassion. And then I just think, okay, come on, Susie, and just talk sense to myself. And and I think this is where ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy approaches are really helpful because being clear about your values and moving in that values congruent direction allows you to sit with that, that discomfort or discomfort or all that, the barrage that goes on and going, no, I'm doing this because this is what matters most to me, allows you to, to move through that. Yeah, I think that was a changing point for me, Susie, when I could attach more towards my values and showing up and sharing anyway instead of yes. listening to that other side. And I think there's a lot of relief on the other side of facing these thoughts because it doesn't have as much power. Once you say it out loud, it sort of loses its intensity. You realise you're not alone. And it can also open a door to a new way of being, you know, something that I work a lot with educators because I'm really trying to help people see that taking care of yourself is being a good teacher, is being a good parent, like it's a part of it. And something that comes up often is the idea of, oh, I feel guilty. So I, I, I know the concept, I'll put my oxygen mask on, I know all that, but then when I go to do it, I feel guilty. And then I encourage them to think, well, you're on, that means you're on the right track. Like if you're getting that guilt, that means you're trying something different and to acknowledge it and do it anyway. Read the book for pleasure anyway and eventually you'll start to shift and the guilt will still be there. We're not going to get rid of it, but I love that visual of, it's just not driving the bus, like it's in the back seat. <laughs> That's it. I love that too. And I, from, in my work with educators, the analogy of if your glass is full, so if you have invested in your well-being, you're taking care of yourself, it's just a tip. It's so easy. So ultimately, it's not a selfish pursuit. It actually allows you to give more fully. Whereas if you're really struggling and you're half full, it's very destabilizing to try and give to others. So and again, you know, I feel guilty. Well, what are the thoughts that are driving that? And, and perhaps there is an opportunity to challenge them or to tell a different story around why you're doing it. And ultimately, this is for others, not a selfish pursuit. I think there's so much power in that. And it gives people an invitation to think about the stories they have when it comes to well-being. Like who does take care of themselves? What are the stories you have about them? And then thinking about, is it helpful? Is it true? Is it inspiring? And those things. I'd love to know from you, Susie, when it comes to a new year, do you have a process that you go through to set yourself up for success? Of course I do. <laughs> you know, I mean, I wouldn't call myself a coach if I did it, but um, no, I'm I'm a bit of an absolutely um, a goals nerd, if you like. So um, at the beginning of each year, I, I do the life balance wheel and um, we we have one. I mean, you can Google them. They're everywhere, but I'm happy to send through uh, our copy of ours. And it looks at the primary domains of your life, so um, family um, or relationships, social, financial, spiritual, whatever it is. And then I, you give yourself a rating of how you're – I actually colour it in and, you know, it goes out to, a, I think, a score of 10. And uh, if you could look at my journals over the years, it's been slowly creeping out, which is really good. Um, I mean, some years, you know, there are more challenges in certain 
uh, sectors, uh, family or whatever. Um, but then I spend a day of the first week of January on each of those domains. So I'll have a day focusing on um, my health and health, fitness and beauty, for example. And then I'll I'll set. Um, and I guess I've moved more towards intentions. I'm 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 probably I do the goal stuff so uh, intuitively that I I don't. Over the years of having done this, I don't feel the need to sit down and create a smart goal for myself anymore. Mind you, I do put a time frame on it. I usually set quarterly, uh, I guess, targets, and I also think about for the month. So I look at each month as I progress through the year as well. And every normally every Sunday, I'll review um, those the life balance wheel, the the six or seven domains I've got, what I was wanting to achieve, and then I'll set what actions can I take this week that are going to move me towards achieving those goals? So, uh, yeah, so that's my process. of, And then I have my positivity journal and um, each day I'll, I'll set goals that are aligned uh, to what I'm trying to achieve as well. Oh, I so, love yeah, a bit that. of a nerd. <laughs> I love that. I love, I love nerdy goals. That's like right up my alley. And I love the idea of you've got that fuzzy future Yes. And you've got a really clear next step. So you've got the next step each day, but you've also got each week what you're going to do. And so it makes it really possible. So it turns something that could be potentially overwhelming and really hard into, I'll just chip away. I can just chip away at this. It's just chipping away. It really is. And again, I think bringing back the self-compassion, there's some days or weeks that it doesn't happen for various reasons. And I just think, okay, it didn't happen, but what about tomorrow or what about next week? And just consistently getting back up up on the horse. But um, I just wanted to mention in terms of the fuzzy vision, we have a fantastic tool called Letter from the Future. Um, I have my own. I've been writing them since I, I think I turned 30. So I think I did 30 to 40. Then I did 40 to 50. And now I'm on my, my 60 year old self has written my letter and I'm, you know, sort of halfway through that at the moment, Megan, that is really where you do give yourself permission to dream. And it's more about your values being lived. So it's, it's much less specific and much more fuzzy around what life looks like. Um, if I was truly living my my values, so uh, so yeah, so that's uh, I love the letter from the future, and I usually try and read that, if not every week, every few weeks, just as a reminder of the longer term fuzzy vision that I'm working towards. I love that so much of what you're saying and sharing. There's a real rhythm. There's a real ritual. You know, on Sundays you check in, and I think that our brains really love that idea of keeping on track like I think about students in the classroom there are some students you may say their name 15 times just because they just get off track you know got to bring it back and so I love the idea of keeping in contact with our values not just to something we do one day and then that sits on the shelf but bringing it center of mind bringing it back to this am I where am I going and I've noticed with myself and the people that I work with that the more it's front and center the more it's there and present the easier it is to make slight little changes and course correct but if we leave it six months 12 months sometimes we've gone way off course and it takes a bit longer to get back exactly and I think you know the values are really important in terms of the letter from the future we recommend that you you do 
spend quite a bit of time. And for some people, I've had clients say, I need a whole year to get clear on my values. So, you know, get clear on your values. And then, um, as I said, weave them through that fuzzy vision. But then the goals, the, the more shorter term specific goals really need an explicit link to your values. But also flipping it the other way, when I look at my values at the beginning of the year, and I have an acronym, um, which reminds me of you know of what my my values are because if I have to make a decision, I can bring to mind that acronym and I just quickly work through how well it's aligned to my values. So I found that's worked really well for me as well. Um, but then I think about those values. So say for example, um, actually wisdom is, is one of mine. So I recently retweeted them when I turned fifty. They didn't change too much. They're just a little more sophisticated now. <laughs> I would say, but um, wisdom is one that I think, you know, part of, I guess, the, the the positive aging process. But there's also some great research in psychology around wisdom that I haven't really put my head into. So I'm, I'm keen to sort of, I've set some goals about learning around the scientific literature on wisdom, but also having the opportunity to reflect and how does that actually apply to my own lived experience as someone that is, you know, aging and, and, and has a strong desire to be more wise than I've ever been, you know, throughout my life. Oh, there's so much magic in what you say because it's keeping this theme of being really conscious and being really deliberate and having your eyes open to possibilities along the way. It's not that it has to be directly A to B. It's more like this idea of wisdom, like it's wisdom can take you anywhere and you're up for that as long as you're putting in that deliberate practice. So I was wondering, Susie, would you be able to share an example of a goal that wasn't an overnight success. It was something that you had to really, you've had to chip away at. You've had ritual, you've had routine to get to a place where you get that desired end state. Yeah, and I think I just want to make a differentiation up front and having worked with hundreds of people on their goals over the years as well, clearly there are some goals that we have more control over than others. You know, and I'm someone that I'm, a, as I said, a goals person. I like to set goals. I like to achieve them. And when it comes to, I guess, my career, I've had a fair amount of control over how much work I've done, how much study I've done, how much connection I've done. Um, you know, but personally, over the years and with clients, goals, say, for around having a you know, a healthy romantic relationship. Um, now, there's a certain amount of things you can do to prepare yourself for that, um, to put yourself in the right circumstances, but there's also a little bit of magic and synchronicity around when that happens as well. I mean, same with uh, careers. I've, I've coached a lot of people on career coaching. We do everything to get clear on, you know, what's a career or what's a job that's going to really be aligned to their values, that leverages their strengths. And then sometimes it's a waiting game because it's 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 timing, you know. So you also have to have a fair degree of patience um, and you know, perhaps take an in the meantime uh, scenario, I'm not saying relationship there, but with jobs, sometimes people take an in the, the meantime, and then they just keep their eyes peeled. Um, so I just wanted to differentiate that because I've been through both. Um, I, I did set a goal to having come out of a divorce many years ago in my early 30s, I set a goal for a healthy relationship. And it took a 
bloody long time <laughs> for that to happen. And I'm really pleased to say I've been in a relationship for 10 years now and I'm grateful for that relationship every single day. Um, I did have a, a list of the qualities of the person that I wanted and uh, he ticks pretty much every one of those. But but more recently, um, I've just moved into a my dream apartment Meg and um, that has been on I think on my letter from the future since my 30s um, I've put everything into my business over the years and uh, so it's taken me a long time to actually purchase this uh, dream apartment um, and I've you know there's been ups and downs and it has been a balance with uh, I think again this is where conflicting values and conflicting goals because the business has been so important to me and the work that I do that I've invested a huge amount in that financially as well and in my education um, but yeah I, I finally just moved in here about five or six weeks ago and uh, it again I had a list and it ticks just about everything it uh, it doesn't have a balcony yet and when I came in I was doing I had my little checklist and I'm going yep it's got this it's got this it's got this and then I said oh but it doesn't have a balcony and the real estate agent said oh they have DA approval and there's one being built in in the next 18 months so the balcony's coming for the dream apartment (laughs) but uh, it's been a lot of hard work a lot of patience and uh, but you know the dream the dream has has arrived finally. (laughs) Oh, Susie, congratulations. You know, I've seen you go through this process and I think there's so much joy in something that takes so long because you just appreciate how special it really is. And sometimes I think if things do happen quickly, we sometimes don't appreciate the process and it's a process where you get that real sense of achievement. Absolutely. And look, there's a lesson in there for parents, um, you know, let your kids strive for the goals because it's in the striving, this is what sh- what the research supports, it's the goal striving that leads to well-being, not the goal attainment per se. So you want your kids to have to work for things, not just get things. And then, as you said, there's a greater chance that there'll be greater levels of gratitude associated with that. Oh, Susie, I'd have to share a story. What just come to, yeah. came to mind is... I remember when I was younger and we used to get pocket money and you put your pocket money away and um, it was back in the day actually where mum would take me to the bank so we'd have to put half of my pocket money in the bank, you know, so my gold coins in the bank and whatever because I was saving and I was saving for a CD player and I really wanted a CD player where I can push it down and it pops up and you put your CD in and I remember going down to, it must have been like a JB Hi-Fi or something, and I'd saved up my money for the year. And that CD player, honestly, I looked after it like gold, like I would clean it daily and just look after it in such special ways because it meant so much to me. Right. And what great uh, parenting uh, there by your parents to uh, to help you see the benefit of saving and, yeah. uh, and yeah. waiting and striving towards something. I didn't appreciate it at the time, I can tell you, when everybody else was getting CD players <laughs> whenever they wanted. But now I look back and think that being able to wait, having that delayed sense of gratification is quite a skill and a really Absolutely. important school, skill in this process. Yeah. There's another great analogy um, for those, anyone that's in uh, Sydney. I've been doing the Bondi to Bronte 
uh, track, walking track for many, many years, uh, sometimes run it, but um, mostly walk it. It's very, very busy through COVID. But um, but when you're walking that track, you start off at Bondi and you come up and you look over and you can actually see, um, I think, Coogee in the distance, but Bronte where, where is the destination that you're heading to. And I realised many years ago that as you're walking that track, there are curves, it winds, and there are points where you curve in and you lose track. You can't actually see Bronte anymore, but you're still on the track and you know it's there and you know that you're heading there. And I thought that's such a powerful analogy for your, your dreams and your desires and your goals. You hold them, you know they're there, and you know that there are twists and turns, but you're still on the path and, and you're moving towards it. Oh, I love that visualisation and that is a very special walk. Sydney is a very <laughs> special place. And so for people at home, it's a new year. Look, we've had some shockers. The last two years have really challenged us and I think a lot of people will be thinking wellbeing is something that I really want to focus on in a strategic way this year. What would be your advice for people that allows them to move forward with that hope but also a sense of reality. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, perhaps think about what well-being means to you. And as we know, there are a number of models out there like PERMA. Um, I have my own 6M model, which is sort of psychological capabilities that support well-being. But um, it can be a good framework. I mean, if we even if we just take PERMA and, and assessing yourself around how well you're doing against positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning and accomplishment, and then thinking which area um, I might want to put my you know, investment in from a psychological well-being. But as I said, the life balance wheel is another really good one. You always want to take a sense of, you know, which is what's the smallest thing that I can do that's going to make the biggest difference or what's the area that's going to have the greatest ripple effect onto all the other areas of my life. And I would recommend don't overwhelm yourself. Please don't feel pressured when you hear me talking about all the different domains that I work on. Um, maybe just pick one and maybe it is just, your, you know, your psychological health or your physical health or well-being. Um, and then, yeah, chunk it down into something small uh, that you can do and Use that research uh, findings around implementation intention. So if you're looking at your lifetime table, and I often have clients draw up their, their lifetime table Monday to Sunday from 5 or 6 whenever you wake up till you know, 9 or 10 whenever you go to bed, and then look at where can I schedule in, say, for example, three times 40-minute exercise sessions, which the research supports is you know, associated with lower levels of depression and greater levels of well-being. So look at your lifetime table, look at where you have responsibilities and commitments that you can't change too much, but then where are you going to slot? And I would say slot is the key word because if, particularly when it comes to physical health or even mindfulness practice, if it's too hard, you've got to travel, you've got to go somewhere. I've found like running for me has been one of the best uh, exercises because you don't have to go anywhere. I can just walk out the front um, and, and run here um, or even there's some great yoga videos you can do from home. It doesn't have to be expensive, but what are the little things? And then actually schedule them in your diary. So there are appointments with yourself um, and also scheduling some self-coaching sessions. You know, so maybe once a week, a 30-minute self-coaching session to reflect on how you're traveling, what's working well, what you do differently. Um, but I'd also say, Meg, consider, you know, perhaps rather than additional 
uh, beauty <laughs> um, or, you know, external physical um, gym memberships, maybe think about engaging a coach in 2022. <laughs> yeah, I think that's such good advice. And um, an example that I'd love to share with people is uh, on a Sunday morning, I do my long run. Yes. And what I've started doing in the last few months is no phone, no podcast, no learning and just quiet. And that's my active reflection time. So I go Love through it. like, what was my highlight of the week? What was my struggle? How did I overcome it. it? What was my lesson of the week? And that's been a really good opportunity for me to reflect but I'm also doing the physical as well. And it's become a real routine and ritual. I love that. I mean, I love listening to podcasts and music when I run. I've just done a run this morning, a brief one. But um, the other week when I was doing Bondi to Bronte, I actually forgot my AirPods. And so I had to do a mindful, quiet walk. And I had so many creative ideas when I was on that walk in the in the sort of the downtime of, of that walk. So I think that's a fabulous idea. But, you know, whether it's running, what we do know is we need reflective spaces and educators in particular. My key question is where is your reflective space? And most of them go, I don't have one. So a goal in itself could be to find in your timetable, even if it's 15 minutes of a reflective space to reflect on who am I, what matters most to me, um, what are my goals, how am I tracking, what am I doing well and what am I going to, you know, action this week. Just just a brief self-reflection, self-coaching period could make a huge difference. Oh, absolutely. And I think that is such a powerful question around reflection. When do you think... (laughs) When do you give yourself permission to think? To wrap this conversation up, Susie, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Okay. Okay. So I am inspired by? Young people, Meg. And I include you in there. <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm really, I have some amazing young people. I mentor uh, some young psych uh, students and they're just so inspiring, I think, you know, their um, focus on well-being. Uh, they they tend to know more about well-being and mindfulness than than older generations. They're more open to experiences. So, yes, absolutely young people. <laughs> when life feels hard? I take a nap. <laughs> so I'm a big fan of the nap. If I can get a nap in at 3 o'clock, I will get one. It doesn't happen every day, but uh, I actually don't even, unless I'm really, really exhausted, I don't set an alarm. I just can put put myself down um, and wake up within 10 to 15 minutes without an alarm. But I also love the sleep stories on Calm. Uh, there's some great nap sleep stories on there as well. Good tip. Um, an underrated skill is? Yeah, I had to think a little bit about that one. I, I still would say it's listening and uh, I'm certainly, you know, not and you know, not outstanding in, in that myself. In fact, my team have been giving me some feedback lately around scanning emails um, and I just heard a fantastic webinar on digital communication saying, that reading, particularly when it comes to digital communication, reading emails is the new listening. And I just find, if particularly if it's a long email, I'll just scan through and I miss things. I reread and it's happened a little bit in the last couple of months I've, when I've moved house, I've, my daughter's had a new baby. And so my team have been saying, Susie, slow down, 
um, and read, which really is listening. So, uh, and of course, listening in, in real time, most of us think we're, we do. Um, and I can tell you from coach training that most people ha- have big ahas that, uh, that we, we don't really do active listening that well in, in, for a majority of the time. So, yeah, listening and active listening in particular. And I am looking forward to a break, <laughs> a holiday at this time in the year. It has been a big year. I mean, particularly people in Victoria, but here in Sydney too, we had that lockdown and uh, didn't really get to have much of a break. And uh, so I'm actually going camping with my partner and uh, he is he excels at camping. Um, I always feel highly incompetent when we go camping, Meg. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's I'm so looking looking forward to having time off the grid and being out in nature um yeah and having a break oh Susie thank you so much for being a guest on the school of well-being podcast I have learned so much from you but I'm also sad for listeners they can't see your beautiful face because when you speak you absolutely light up you walk your talk and this is obviously just so meaningful for you. So thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your knowledge today. Thank you, Meg. You're doing such a wonderful job. I love your energy as well. And uh, I want to wish everyone a happy new year and uh, be sure to set those goals. And uh, I hope you achieve your dreams and desires. Oh, thanks so much, Susie. Bye for now. Bye for now. Thank you. I'm not sure about you, but now I'm even more excited about the year ahead and what we can create for ourselves and our schools and our communities. It is going to be an incredible year. And I hope this conversation inspired you to think about what is your desired end state? How do you want to feel, function and relate this year? And what strategies, skills and processes are you going to put in place to allow yourself the best shot at feeling and functioning and relating that way. To learn more about Susie's incredible work in the world, visit the Positivity Institute website. There you'll be able to see Susie's book, The Positivity Prescription, and listen to Susie's podcast. She has two incredible podcasts. One is called The Positivity Prescription, And the second for educators is the pioneers of positive education. So if your school is on a positive education and well-being at the journey at the moment, listen to these conversations and they'll give you a real insight in how to make this stick in your school community. Before you go, I would like to invite you to stop and take a moment to think about the two following questions. From this conversation, What is one thing you want to remember? What is your pearl? And number two, what is one action you can take to support your well-being in the next 24 hours? If any of the topics that we discussed during this conversation today resonated with you, you will love my signature well-being program, Energy by Design. Energy by Design is a 10-week program for big-hearted educators that are ready and willing to experience more energy, clarity and confidence in their lives. In episode five, I chat with big-hearted educator Shannon Tracy about his Energy by Design experience. So if you want to know what it's really like to work with me, take a listen to episode five. This is an incredible opportunity 
to take your well-being to the next level because you're working with a group of people that want to see you thrive, that want to see you take the next step. And my time in education, I have noticed that the biggest factor when it comes to taking care of ourselves is seeing other people do it. And the impact of that social support is just hard to articulate. When you're working with a group that really want to see you take care of yourself, magic truly does happen. And I am so excited about this program. I only run it twice a year and I give you all my energy, everything I've got to give you 10 weeks to really jumpstart your well-being, so you can really shine and show up in the ways that align with your values and bring joy to your life. The next round kicks off Monday, the 31st of January, and I am so excited to see what we can create together. To keep in the loop with everything that I'm up to and things that I'm loving, subscribe to the Thought of the Week email. To support the show, please rate and review on iTunes and share with your family, friends and colleagues. If every listener shared with one friend or one colleague or one family member, we will have an incredible ripple effect in the community. Imagine what the world would be like if more of us had the skills and strategies to live well. All the links from this episode will be in the show notes. Before you go, I wanted to share with you something that I do every year. Every year, I spend some time thinking about what is my focus for the year? What is my word for the year? So my word for 2021 was impact. And throughout the year, I kept coming back to how can I have a greater impact in the world? And so for 2022, my word is focus. I want to have greater focus. I want to create space in my week to think deeply about things that matter to me, to create content like this, this podcast, to be able to read books and really protect my focus. So I'd love to hear from you. In 2022, what is your word? What is going to anchor you when the waves are crashing around you? I have found this practice really helpful and I've been doing it for the last five or six years and it's made a really big difference. So take a moment or take a few days to really think about this year, what is your word? Thank you for listening to an episode of the School of Wellbeing. This episode was proudly brought to you by Open Mind Education. Open Mind Education is committed to sharing wellbeing education that makes sense. To learn more, visit the website openmindeducation.com. There you can sign up for the free five-step energy guide to help boost your energy so you can better navigate the ups and downs of life. Thank you for listening and I look forward to sharing more lessons in the School of Wellbeing next week.